Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here. Um, and it's a privilege, as always, to be here and to be able to uh, open God's Word with you. Many times, um, uh, Phil and I talk about this quite a bit when uh, we get together and um, just the challenge it can be to, uh, to stand up here and let me tell you, we, uh, we don't take it lightly and this is one of those mornings that I'm not taking it lightly. <laughs> so I've got some, uh, I don't want to say random thoughts that I want to share, but just some some things that um, were on my heart that I, I thought I would just see kind of how it gels together. So if it doesn't gel together, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but I think it'll be good to, to just look at some things this morning uh, together. Uh, and I kind of, one of the things that got me uh, really thinking about this is really is just in the time, in the time that we live, in this day and age, and um, what we are seeing and experiencing, experiencing all around us, um, it's sometimes I'm just uh, at a loss for words to uh, even describe it. Um, and I think all of us can um, relate to that. We, we're all experiencing that to um, a certain extent of just the, the darkness and the deception and the things that seem to be progressing around us. So in just kind of thinking on that, which I think on and often, it's hard to not, um, it just it gets me thinking more and more about the... Um, the preciousness of the time that we have here and the urgency, uh, the urgency of, um, you know, there's coming um, a time, there's coming a, an end to all of this, and there's coming a, uh, a, a day of reckoning, as the Lord sometimes puts it. Uh, and, and most importantly, there's coming a time where there will no longer be the opportunity for um, people to take hold of and um, be rescued from the path that they're on. So, I, you know, these are the kind of thoughts that have been going through my mind. Um, so it just got me thinking some uh, on that. And one thing that would come to my mind, uh, has been coming to my mind, is um, something that we, we hear a lot, we throw around a lot, is kind of part of our uh, Christianese uh, talk and and that is the the sovereignty of God. It's quite a um, quite a topic that you certainly um, can't just uh, do it justice in, in in one message at all. And I'm certainly not going to try to. But one of the things that uh, came to my mind and I began to ponder is how we do use uh, the term uh, in the description, the sovereignty of God. Uh, and I thought we would just take a glance at that for a little bit and then talk about some other things. Um, you know, as we know that our God is all-knowing, He's all-powerful, and He is present everywhere at all times. Uh, Christianese would say He's omniscient, He's omnipotent, and He's omnipresent. 
I don't like to talk Christianese sometimes, so, um, so it's no surprise really that we attribute the word sovereign to him. It's certainly, um, if it's appropriate to anyone, it's appropriate for him because he is sovereign. If you take a look at, um, and here's, here's the thing, sometimes, I think whether this is intentional or not, I'm certainly um, guilty of this, intentional or not, we often speak of the sovereignty of God um, as to mean that not only is he a supreme power and authority, but that he uses that power and authority to uh, determine every decision, every step, uh, every action. And actually, that is something uh, a little bit different that we'll touch on in a little bit. But I thought, well, let's take a look at um, what's the common use of the, of the word sovereign. If you look at a at the Webster's Dictionary, this is from Webster's online um, dictionary. It, it has the definitions and various uses, and then it has this blurb here that I thought was interesting. I thought we'd read it together. It says, sovereign has everything to do with power. It often describes a person who has supreme power or authority, such as a king or queen. God is described as sovereign in a number of Bible translations. In addition to describing one, ones who have power, the word sovereign also often describes power. In other words, power itself. To have sovereign power is to have absolute power. That is, power that cannot be checked by anyone or anything. Nations and states are also sometimes described as sovereign. This means that they have power over themselves. Their government is under their own control rather than the control of an outside authority. And this is, uh, this is basically the, the use of the word sovereign. All that makes sense, I think, to all of us when we, when we read that. But I think that we, we tend to, as I said, how we uh, sometimes use the word sovereign as, as being something that um, is... God uses his, sovereign, uh, his, his sovereignty to determine everything. So I think the use of sovereign in this way not only goes beyond the common use of the word, but it also contradicts Scripture and, and what we know of God's character. As mentioned already, um, if you consider you know, the historical use of a sovereign position, position such as a king over a nation, he has supreme power and authority. And he applies that power and authority through laws and decrees to help govern his nation and carry out his purposes. He also has the power and authority to enforce his laws through punishment should um, one of his subjects choose to break them. But you would never describe or understand that the king's sovereignty uh, is making it impossible for someone to do that. That's because the option to act contrary to the sovereign king's wishes is plainly understood. If someone chooses to break his laws, it doesn't mean the king is no longer sovereign. His sovereignty has not changed. And the consequences for that lawbreaker will soon remind him of that. 
So I, I think the same is uh, true uh, with the sovereignty of God, but somehow we, we tend to often use that word in a, in a little bit of different way, different way, like I was describing. We go a little bit further than that in that he controls everything. And I think that we go beyond what uh, it means for God to be sovereign when we use it in that way. So there is no contradiction between his sovereignty uh, and the free will that he gives mankind. And so there's another uh, big topic, uh, the free will of, of man. And also God's elect. Well, I'm bringing some doozies this morning. Well, these are topics that uh, will always cause difficulty. And uh, for our limited understanding, there's just really no way, and uh, myself uh, included, by no means will I be able to do it justice. There will always be, always has been, this um, trying to, to resolve this or trying to uh, bring everything to a nice neat, nice, neat, and tidy conclusion in regards to the free will of man and um, God, God's elect. But there's always going to be, in this lifetime anyway, these gaps that we cannot fully bring together. But having said that, there is a doctrine uh, that is taught in many churches to which um, I do, I have a hard time uh, coming into alignment with it. And, and now, so, this is one of those things that we are not going to, this is not one of those doctrines that we are going to allow to cause division because there's plenty of scriptures on both sides to, to raise an, uh, a very good argument both ways. And uh, I've done lots and lots of study on it, as many of you have as well. Uh, the doctrine that I'm speaking of is predestination, is how it's most commonly known. It's also referred to as divine determinism or theistic determinism. And basically, it's uh, mainly taught by those who subscribe to the teachings of Calvinism, uh, which is named after John Calvin. And its main premise is, as I mentioned earlier, is that God determines each person's every decision and action. We have no free will to make our own choices. All that we do is already determined by God, and we have no option of doing otherwise. Salvation, therefore, is all God's doing. And we have no part to play. We cannot resist it even if we wanted to. Uh, and so let me just say up front that I, I have a hard time reconciling that with Scripture. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mean that there's not uh, a plenty of, there are plenty of Scriptures that will back, um, that is used to back that um, uh, dogma. But I believe that if you take the whole of Scripture you have a much more balanced understanding and, and view of who God is and how he interacts with mankind. So throughout Scripture, we can see that, I mean, you can't deny that God gives people a choice of whether or not to obey him. He has not made um, us to be just simply puppets as he pulls the strings uh, for everything he wants us to do. And if he determines every decision we make, then 
listen, many evil deeds and sinful acts are actually his doing rather than ours. And we know he is not the author of such things. Now, there are a few scriptures that seem to support a uh, deterministic handling of mankind by God, but these are unique when compared to the many, many, many more scriptures that support our free will to choose. For example, there would be no reason for scripture to even specify God hardening one's heart if man had no other option. It would just be the norm. There, was, there would be no need to, to even make that known. But the reason these scriptures are unique is because that is not the norm in scripture. After all, what need is there to harden one's heart if free will doesn't exist? Another example is um, Paul's reference to the potter and the clay in Romans 9.21. But remember, to fully understand this analogy, we must balance it with God's explanation of the potter and the clay that he gave to the prophet Jeremiah. So in, in Romans, Paul says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. And often this is one of the verses used to support this um, divine deterministic uh, theology that God decides everything. We have no, no say-so in the matter. But when we take a look at Jeremiah 18, we see what God says about the potter and the clay. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord... Arise and go down. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled or marred. It didn't come out uh, as he liked. So it was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. <clears throat> o house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one of you from his evil ways and amend your ways and your deeds. So we get a better understanding of God's sovereignty, if you will, over um, us as the clay or any nation as the clay in the potter's hands. 
God does have sovereignty to choose how he fashions that clay into what vessel he, types of, type of vessel he makes it. But we're talking about a good God, are we not? A righteous God, a just God. And so he will, he will not do something unjustly. And as we see his explanation to Jeremiah, we as the clay, we do have a responsibility in this, and that is to, to, to run in his hands, to cooperate with every push and pull and um, pressure and the things that he does as the potter to his people, to any nation. We have a responsibility to respond to that accordingly, properly, in the right way. And God says that if we are doing evil and he's ready to fashion us into a very crude pot, if we will repent and turn from that wicked way, he will relent. And vice versa. If he plans to bless and prosper a nation or a person, but that person turns from their, their righteous way, righteous living, and turns to evil, then he can relent from his plan to bless that person. And this is the type of thing we see throughout Scripture. And time does not permit for us to look and examine uh, every Scripture where we can actually see this. But it's, it's throughout. And it's actually a... It's actually a good thing for us to take some time um, if this hasn't been resolved, especially for you. Um, and like I said, it's, it's hard to get to a conclusion on this, but it's good to take some time to look at the whole of Scripture and evaluate. Evaluate what every situation has and, and how God interacts with mankind I think one of the uh, <clears throat> most damaging aspects of teaching uh, a divine determinism <clears throat> is the assault it makes on God's character. And this is something that uh, those who promote this, um, this teaching, uh, this often just goes round and round in circles because they never can quite resolve this. Because it's, it's really not something you can resolve. How does one reconcile God being good, loving, and just if he predetermines some to be saved and the rest to be damned to suffer eternal torment for absolutely no reason of their own? And that is a question that we would all have to grapple with. It cannot be justly answered. It's said that God chose this for them before they were ever even born. If that were true, and those chosen to be saved can say, we love because he first loved us, then it is equally valid for the damned to say we hate because he first hated us. <clears throat> it 
consider the next two verses in, in 1 John where I quoted that. I don't think I have this on the... Uh, no, I don't. I'll just read it to you. In 1 John, this is in chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. He says, John says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves, must, whoever loves God must also love his brother. <clears throat> now, how can someone re read those warnings from Scripture, from, from God, but then tell the world that God loves this person but hates that person? And neither of them have done anything to deserve his love or hatred. God determined it before they were born, they say. And how can that person then describe God as good and loving and just? There is a huge disconnect. Is this the good news that some preach? Is this the character of God that some are describing to people? Now, in God's... Uh, in his omniscience and his omnipotence and his omnipresence. He is all powerful. He is sovereign, therefore, he can wield his power in whatever way he chooses. An example of this is God can choose to remember our sins no more. We cannot do that. We have not the power to do that. God does have the power to do that, and he does apply that power in this way. Thank the Lord that he does. When we have been forgiven, he chooses to remember those sins no more. We come to him, reminding him of what we have done, and he doesn't know what we're talking about. He has the ability to control his memory. His forgetter is not broken. Ours is. That's one of the ways that in his sovereignty he can choose to operate. He can also choose in his sovereignty to choose how much he wants to foresee or to know. He is sovereign. He has the ability and the sovereignty to choose how he operates in his omniscience. The same goes with his power or his presence. Yes, he can be everywhere at all times, but yet we see examples of him choosing to be somewhere in a different way than other places. He is sovereign and he can choose to use that power how he chooses to use it. So I guess some, you know, will say that, well, he foresees what this person before they are born was to be like or what they were going to choose or whether or not they were going to choose blessings or curses or whatever. And I, I understand that that is a 
something to to kind of work work out and see. Maybe that's an, an explanation. Like I said, none of us are going to come to a neat and tidy conclusion of how this all works. It's, it's way too beyond us. We have we have we're much too far removed from an almighty God and his ways and his thinking and his power to be able to neatly wrap our minds around this. But we do need to give this some thought and be careful about how we describe our God and his character. Is he a good God? Is he a loving God? Is he a just God? If he is, then this, that has a lot to do with how we describe him and how we believe he operates and, and interacts with and relates to mankind. I think from the very beginning, we, we see examples of this. Adam and Eve... Did Adam and Eve have a choice? Was God giving them a choice when he said, you may eat of all of these trees except this one? For as surely as you eat of it, you will die. Do not eat of that tree. Was he just saying it for the sake of saying it? They really didn't have the choice. Look, that's out of the gate. Almost every... Story and interaction that you see with God and man, you see God presenting to man a choice. You have a choice. I have a plan for you. I want to bless you. But these are my ways. Walk ye in it, but choose. There's another way. And if you choose to walk in that way, there are consequences that come with that because that is a way of disobedience. And we see this presented again and again. We see God sending his prophets again and again to the people of Israel. Listen, sometimes, and I got caught up doing this last night into the wee hours of the night. I got to reading uh, about the Israelites and the Exodus and all of the many incredible events and stories. And I mean, we really need to read that through uh, regularly to remind us of the, of the incredible patience and long-suffering of God to these stubborn, stiff-necked people. And we have to read that and remind ourselves that we're just like these people. They're no different but we need to read it and see that God has done so much for them, has done these incredible miracles, these incredible acts of power. I mean, it's really, it's just amazing what he did. <clears throat> and yet, you turn the page and these people, here they are grumbling again, complaining again. And so many times, God is like, I'm, that's it, I'm done. And he plans to, to wipe them out. And thankfully, Moses, sometimes Moses and Aaron, fall to their faces before the Lord, repenting on their behalf, pleading with God 
to not do that, and God relents. But it's just, it's just amazing to read, and it's, it's, it is good for us to read, to remember God gives man a choice. And if you look at talking about the people of Israel and how God rescued them out of Egypt, he, he brought to them salvation. But that was only the beginning of the road. It was only the beginning. And if you look at how many actually made it and endured and were faithful all the way to the end and entered into the promised land, it's staggering. It's staggering how that number uh, was reduced. And you see it all throughout that story of the, uh, the people who stubbornly rebelled against God and turned from his ways to their own ways and refused to obey and how it brought, uh, it brought punishment, it brought death, it brought condemnation on them. And the numbers, they dwindled. And then at the very end, at the very end, when here's the promised land, here it is for them to just walk in and God was going to give the land to them. But they sent spies. The spies saw, yes, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Grapes are huge. They had to carry it on poles. But there's big people in the land. It talks about some of them being the, the uh, descendants of the Nephilim. So some giants in the land. And so they come back completely like, yes, it's flowing with milk and honey. That's some good land. However, we cannot take that land. All of them except for two, Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb so quickly was like, stop. We can. God will give this to us. And we see how this played out. Right at the very end, right at the gates of, of coming into their promised land that God was giving them, they chose and wanted to literally turn back and go back to Egypt. They grumbled and complained and said they could not and refused to do what God had told them to do and had proven himself to them again and again all this time through their journey, all the miracles, all the the clear plagues and things that he performed in Egypt and then wiping out the Egyptian army, all these things after all these things at the very end. They chose to not believe God. It's unbelievable and we need to read that. But my point is all of these stories that you can read throughout scripture and that's why it's so important that we, that we read all of scripture, the whole of scripture, not just one time in our life, but we're continually reading it because there's a lot to remember and we need to be reminded. We need to go back and, and read through these things and we need to, in, in regards to this topic, we need to look at every interaction between God and man and we need to evaluate and assess, does God allow man to choose for himself? Does God allow man to have a free will choice to choose blessings or curses, obedience or disobedience, to believe or not believe? It is a very good question. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will lead you and us in every reading and evaluation of every story and interaction between God and man to show you the truth. Yes, there are there are those unique cases where God hardens a heart. But oftentimes, if you will read even before that, 
who that person is, what God says of that person, even in those instances, it's not just God plucking out a decision out of a whim for no reason at all. But these are unique cases in comparison to the, the, the huge amount of evidence that we have that God has not made us into puppets. He has given us a choice. He has presented to us an offer of salvation because he knows we are doomed without it. He, he understands our depravity and that we have not the ability to save ourselves nor to even walk in his ways faithfully. And his plan of salvation is a comprehensive plan. But he does not ram it down our throats. He does not force us to accept this plan of salvation or the ways in which he wants us to walk. And I think it's a dangerous thing to preach that type of theology to say there's really nothing that you can do there's nothing that we can do. It is what it is. God loves some. He hates others. He saves some. He damns others. That's the God we serve. But listen, this is, like I said, this is a tough one to come. Uh, so don't come up to me and tell me, hey, listen, I got the answer. Let me share this with you since you clearly don't. Don't do it because I've been, I've been around long enough to know, no, you don't have the answer. Listen, I've studied the word long enough to know, okay, this is not an easy one. But I think if you allow the Spirit to lead you through all of Scripture and, and you really pay attention to God's interaction with mankind, you will see that this is a God who is good and loving and just. And we can be confident in that. Now here's where that led me in thinking through all that, which, yes, it was late in the night. <laughs> so concerning God's elect, that is something we definitely see mentioned in Scripture. God's elect, the ones that he has elected to be his treasured possession. And, and we, we can see this from the get-go as well. If we take a look at the account of Noah, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. This is in the time of Noah. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, of, of man's heart, was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted, that is such a sad statement right there. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I'm just going to pause there. I think God owes them an apology if he never gave them any kind of choice to live rightly. Goes on to say, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And on further, it says, after God gave him all the descriptions of what he was to do to build this ark, exactly how he was to build it, the measurements, the type of wood, all of those things, it says that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So here's an example of something that you can read for yourself. Allow the Spirit to lead you. Does God give man a choice? So you really can't go any further than the first few accounts in Scripture of God's interaction with man where you're going to really have a hard time dealing with this doctrine that says God determines everything and does not give man a choice, it is monergistic, moner, monergism. God does it all. There is no part that man plays in this. And, and you, you will find yourself up against a very difficult doctrinal wall to climb up. If you take a look at... Um, Israel, well, we talked about that already. Um, Deuteronomy 7, 6. This is Moses. This is Moses reminding the people about what has taken place. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. These are God's chosen people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Of the earth. Now, God ch chose the people of Israel, and he clearly says, listen, people of Israel, don't think that I chose you because you are righteous. And don't think that I chose you because you're big and powerful. I did not choose you because you were righteous. You were a stiff-necked people, and you're one of the smallest out there. That is not why I chose you. And he goes on to say, why he's allowing them to drive out the nations before them in the, in the land of Canaan. The Ammonites, the Hibites, the, all the ites, I can't name them all. There's so many, but he's, he tells them clearly, it is because of their wickedness that I am sending you into that land and, and I will hand them over to you. Basically, God was bringing the punishment, the consequences to their wickedness. And he had already stated that from the very beginning when he called Abraham 400 years earlier, he had already told Abraham, your offspring, your descendants will inherit this land. You will not. They will because the, the sins of the Amorites and the people of that land have not yet reached the threshold basically is what he's saying. You can go back and read this in Genesis. God, 400 years ago, told Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. But it's not time yet. Because the sins of these people have not reached the limit where I will bring, I will bring judgment. 
400 years, God knew this was going to happen. But he did not drive these nations out and slaughter all these people for no reason. He didn't just pick that, uh, I'm going to love some and hate others. I'm just, oh yeah, you're... I like you, but I don't like any of you. I'm going to wipe you out. No, no, God is bringing judgment because of their wickedness. And this is clear in Scripture when we, when we really look and pay attention to how God interacts and the, why he does the things that he does. Most of the time, you're going to clearly see that. There are times where it's like, why did he do that? You may, you may not be able to come to a conclusion with that, but for the, for the majority of these stories and interactions and passages in Scripture, you're going to see God's, God's way with man. We are not puppets. He has given us free will to choose. Sorry, I can't quite see the clock. Oh, I got one right there in front of me. Oh, I'm okay, all right. I got at least another hour to go. That's good. All right. Um, if you look at uh, Elijah... This is in regards to uh, God's elect. In 1 Kings 19, this is very interesting. Let, let me just say, um, this is Elijah after basically he had done the confrontation with uh, Jezebel and the prophets of Baal and all of that. And Elijah basically, he's, he's done, he's ready to say, God, kill me, take me. I can't face all these people. All of your people have turned from you. They've turned to worship Baal. They, um, they hate me. They're trying to kill me. And he's, you know, he's um, moaning and groaning to God. And he says, I am the only one left. I am the only faithful one left. And it's, it's interesting to see how God responds. It says here, and when Elijah heard it, um, this, is, this is right after you've heard the story where uh, uh, he's, God says, uh, go here in the rock and wait and I'm going to uh, pass for, before you and, and a strong wind comes by but God was not in it and then it was a earthquake God was not in it and then it was a fire God was not in it and finally there was a soft you know gentle wind and a whisper and, and Elijah knew that was God and when, when Elijah heard it talking about the whisper he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall join Haziel. You shall anoint Haziel to be king over, over Syria. And uh, Jehu, to, uh, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, and son, uh, Elisha the son of Shaphat, of, of that guy, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will, now listen to this, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So listen, God's reckoning, God's judgment is coming to the people of Israel that have forsaken him. 
They have forsaken him. They have turned to worship Baal. They have uh, cowed under the, uh, the rulership of, um, of Ahab and Jezebel, and they have forsaken the Lord in a tremendous way. And God has, has called on them to repent, has warned them, and now his reckoning is coming, his jump, judgment is coming. And Elijah is over here, you know, complaining because he thinks he's the only one. And God tells him, no, there are 7,000, basically 7,000 that he is not going to destroy because they have remained faithful. And he will keep them in the land. These are God's elect. This is God's remnant. These are the ones God elects and chooses because they have not bowed to other gods. They have not forsaken him. They have remained faithful. In Malachi, this is the book right before the 400 years of silence, before the New Testament starts, before Jesus comes on the scene. So the last book in the Old Testament you'll have in your Bible. Um, Malachi is very interesting. He says this, and that's not it. And... Maybe I'm missing it. Okay. I think I've lost my pointer. Can you, um, Scott, or can you? Yep. Thank you. Are you seeing Malachi on there? Okay. All right. Um, look up Malachi 3, 16 through 18. Sorry, I don't have that one printed out. Uh, Malachi 3, 16 through 18, and I'll read it. I guess I have my Bible right here. I could have brought it up. I got it here. That's fine. Thank you. All right, here's what it says. Basically, God is uh, can you go to a blank, uh, blank one there, Scott? Thank you. Um, God is rebuking the, the people uh, for the things that they have done. And they're asking, well, why? Why? What have we done? And, you know, he's going, so you see this exchange. And then in, in chapter 3, starting in verse 14, it says, then those who feared the Lord, okay, key point there. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more shall you see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. There you, you see God reminding the people of this is how 
I make my treasured possession. God will have his treasured possession. God will have his bride. He will have his bride. The question is, will you be in it? Will I be in it? Will I be a part of that? God will make a, he will have his elected people. He will elect those who are righteous and have chosen to serve him in comparison to those who have not been righteous, are living in wickedness, and have chosen to serve only themselves. And this is, this is throughout the New Testament as well. We, we see clearly Jesus even talking about the wheat and the tares and harvesting at the end and, and separating out God's people, the wheat, in comparison to the, the wicked people who are among them, the tares. We see this with the sheep and the goats. Jesus said, I will separate the sheep and the goats. He knows who is his, who has been righteous, who has been serving him and walking in his ways compared to these others who he will say, I do not know you. And he says this again with the fish, the good fish and the bad fish. Jesus will have his bride. God knows that there will be an elect. He is certain. He knows who are his. The question is, will we be included? Now, why have I said all of this? It's because of this. God allows his people to accept or reject his way of salvation. And to accept his way of salvation requires hearing about it. And God's primary method for people hearing about it is through his followers, us. And so my last point that I wrote on my notes is we have a lot to do. We have a lot to do. Listen, God is delaying. And he says in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is God's heart. That is his desire. He is a good God. He is a God of love. He is a just God. And he is being patient because there are so many lost in this world and he is wanting to save them. He has an incredible plan of salvation. But listen, God chooses to use mankind. He chooses to use his people to carry out his purposes. It's an amazing thing to think that first he gives us... First, he gives us the free will to choose if we even want to serve him. Then he hinges his plan of salvation on us, bringing that to people and on blessing people through us. He chose the, the people of Israel so that he could bless the world through them. And now we are the body of Christ because it is through the body of Christ that we bring salvation to the world. Paul talks about Faith comes by hearing. 
hearing by the word of God. But how are people going to hear if we don't take it to them? Now listen, God is bringing people in our path daily, all the time. He's putting people in our path. Listen, people are desperate. They are without hope. They are coming to the end of themselves, and you can see it. Just watch the news. It's, it's crazy, the, the increase of wickedness and darkness that's going on now. There's an unleashing going on. There's been a restraining, but that's being unleashed. But that doesn't mean that the, God, that, that the church, the body of Christ, will not be able to prevail against the gates of hell. We will prevail against the gates of hell. They will be established to keep us out. We're going to come in. But we're not going to do it if we allow ourselves. And here's the, here's the problem. Man, I am victim of this all the time. We, there are so many distractions in this world. I believe now in this time and day, there is more opportunity for distraction than there has ever been. And listen, our enemy is perfectly happy to keep you busy with distractions. And he is throwing it at us all the time. The way that we have become uh, addicted to our phones and to social media and to, and to all of that and to entertainment, and all, it, it is, it is mind-boggling. And some of us, you young people, don't really know what it was like before all of that. But, I, but some of us older ones kind of know what it was like when we had to go outside and we had to pretend and make believe and create our world to play in and all that. It's not like that anymore. I'm not... This is not to point a finger at any parents or even young people. This is the way our society and culture is, and we must fight against it. But here's the thing is, Satan is happy to keep you distracted. He is happy to keep throwing things your way, to keep your mind and get your, get your, your crosshairs off of the target. What is the target? The target is... God, God is looking to expand his family. He is looking for the bride. He is looking to redeem what he started from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, but gave them a choice. They chose wrongly. That was ruined. The plan was ruined. He plans to redeem it. He plans to recreate and bring his people back into a place, into an incredible place, a wonderful place. He's going to give them access again to the tree of life. There's so much incredible, incredible news, good news about this plan, but the people have to hear it. It's just, oh, I hope God knows what he's doing. He's waiting to, he's, he's going to use us you look all throughout Scripture, all of the things that God did, all of the amazing, amazing miracles and, and, and moves of power, all of those things, almost always He does it through people, through mankind, especially through His servants. It's, it's amazing. But that's how He chooses to operate. Listen, He is the same today. He has not changed. He will use His people to carry out His purposes. And he will wait if he has to. It says that when everyone has heard, then the end will come. 
God wants more people to be saved. He does not want to condemn them. That's not who he is. That's not what he wants. But he is just and he is holy. And his holiness will not be compromised. Sin must be punished. There will come a reckoning. There will come a day of judgment. Oh my goodness. People have no idea what's coming. The Jesus who's meek and mild that they think is not going to be the Jesus that they see. But they don't have to perish. If they can hear this good news, if they can hear this plan of salvation, this, this plan to rescue them, God is offering to rescue them. If they can hear this, maybe, 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 just maybe, they will turn and take hold of it and receive it. But I will warn you, you're going to be rejected more than you will be received. They will hate you. It says that we will be hated because of his name. We see it already. It's here. It's among us. We're a little bit protected here in South Carolina. But you can see it. It's all around us and it's coming. We will be hated. Does that mean we go silent? No. Does that mean we compromise? No. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Testimony means to open our mouths and speak. It means we may have to speak a hard truth. We may have to say, No, you're a male, you're a female. That's how God made you. No, that's silly talk. You're twisting reality. There are times we will have to be offensive for the sake of the truth. And you will be hated. I will be hated. It's here. It's among us. Are we ready to do that and at the same time are we ready to give people a hope and a way to be saved God is wanting us to use us to bring this to every person who comes on your path listen don't don't waste a lot of time trying to convince someone who doesn't want to receive it Move on. There are so many people out in this world that need hope. They need to hear this good news. They're desperate. They're at the end of their rope. Those are the ones, those are the sick ones who need a doctor. We've got to get to them. The ones who think they're, they don't need it, who hate you, who hate the fact that you say that, yes, there's truth in this world and absolute truth, and yes, what you're doing is wrong. They hate you for it. Listen, move on. Wipe the dust from your feet. Move on. If they do not want to receive this message, there are many who are perishing who want to hear the hope that we have to share with them. All right, I went into preaching mode. I'm sorry. I'm going to end it now. God is so good. Listen, God is so good. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you that you are a God in whom we can trust. You are good. You are loving. You are just. 
And thank goodness, God, you are patient. You are patient. Thank you for your long-suffering, Lord. Thank you for your long-suffering. God, I pray for myself and for each person here this morning. God, that we that we would have a renewed sense of urgency of what our task here is here on this earth. For the time we have remaining here, God, that you would renew the urgency of the call and the purpose and the mission that we have. I ask that for myself and for everyone here. God, I ask that you would help us to stay focused not to allow the distractions of this world completely disqualify us for the mission that you've called us to carry out. God, help us. Humble us. Remind us of the sad, sad thing that's coming. That one day you will have to bring your judgment, your wrath, your recompense. It's coming. But God, you are patiently waiting because you want more people to be saved. God, help us. Help that to sink deep into our hearts. God, help us. Help us. Help, help us by giving us your love that can flow out through us, that can motivate us even amongst those who hate us. They hate us because we stand for you and for truth. God, give us the love that we need to push through, to find those who know they are sick and need a doctor, to find the ones who want different for their lives. Help us to do that, God. We thank you for that privilege. We thank you for giving us uh, the grace that you have extended to each one of us. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, through whom this plan of salvation is even possible. Thank you that you sacrificed him for us so that we may be made whole, that we can be forgiven, that we can be cleansed from our unrighteousness, that we can be saved from our sins. That is the reason that you gave him up for us. God, may that be true in our lives. May our testimonies make that reality real to us and to those around us. May we say God has saved us from our sins. And it is through Jesus Christ. And he now offers that to you. God, thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.
of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. 